For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right. So last week we tackled a few thorny topics in First Peter. And this week we're going to be talking about something that's no less controversial. Women in marriage. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, maybe I walked into the wrong Bible study. Maybe I should show up next week. But this actually has relevance, I think, not only for the married people here, but also for the singles, both men and women. Now, as we make our way through this passage, I want to sort of warn you about how there's sort of an emotional arc in this passage where you start reading the passage, you step on a bunch of landmines and you think to yourself, there's no way that this is what the Bible is saying. And then you do a little bit of digging and you research it and then you're like, oh, what a relieving resolution to this seemingly troubling passage. But then you wait and think to yourself, wait a second, that's challenging too. And so we see that this book, this passage really Offer some challenging material, but here's the thing. When we read the Bible, we don't have to shy away because what we're reading here is God's truth. So why don't we begin by reading the whole passage in its entirety? That way you guys can get the whole, you know, picture. And then we can make our way through it again. So starting in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Ooh. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Ah. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord... And you have become children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with somebody who is weaker since she's a woman. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's pray. So you see what I'm saying here, right? I mean, you read this passage and what it's really saying, at least the way I'm reading it, is women, you should be submissive, obedient and quiet because you're weaker and men are better. Right. Just kidding. That's not what that's not what it's saying. Um, That's actually going to be the topic for our men's retreat this weekend. (laughs) Just joking. But, you know, you read something like this and you think to yourself, this is radioactive stuff, right? I mean, how could this be in the Bible? I can't believe that God would include something like this. This seems to grate against what our culture says is really important, which is equality among genders. And yet 
we have to sort of jog our minds back to what we were studying last week. And we looked at passages that really show the theological basis for equality among all people. Right. We looked at Galatians chapter three, verse twenty eight, where Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ. So according to this passage, it doesn't matter that there are racial divides in our culture. He says Jew nor Greek. It doesn't matter that there are socioeconomic differences, slave nor free. And there are really no differences in terms of equality when it comes to gender, male nor female. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the great equalizer in the Christian life is the basis to which we become believers in Christ. God says it doesn't matter what your social standing is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter who you are. You have to enter in the same way if you want to have a relationship with Christ. It's going to require humility. It's going to require admitting that you don't have what it takes before God and that what you need to do is throw yourself on His mercy and His grace that He offers in Jesus. And so this then gives us a basis for true equality. Not just something that our culture says is really good, but something that God says is eternal. Something that never changes based on culture or time. If you look all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God created both male and female in His image. And so our basis for believing in gender equality is not because that's what's popular today. It's based on the fact that God says men and women are created in His image. So I guess it leaves us wondering, what does this passage mean, right? And I think maybe what we should do is we should step our way through verse by verse and see whether or not we can explain this in a way that is winsome to our culture, but also fits with what Peter is actually trying to say to his audience. So let's begin with verse one. He says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So the first phrase in verse one should sort of tip you off that there's a context. He says, in the same way, we're in the middle of a discussion that Peter is having here. And whenever you run into something like this or the word therefore, or four, it should indicate to you that the context matters, that you need to do a little bit of digging to understand maybe what the author is trying to say. You know, if you called me on the phone and you're like, hey, Conrad, what's going on? And I just started off with, in the same way, you'd be like, wait, wait, what? I'm missing something here. What were you talking about? What, what is this like? What are you referring to? So Peter is talking about a broader concept that he was trying to express in chapter 2, where many Christians that he was talking to were in a situation where they're under tremendous persecution. People misunderstood 
what Christianity was all about. There are all these accusations flying about Christianity in the ancient world. And so Peter is saying, this is how you ought to conduct yourselves in the watching world. So really, this is sort of an extension of that discussion, but talking about it in the case of women living with unbelieving husbands. If you look at 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Peter says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So he says you should conduct yourself in a way that is attractive to the watching world, knowing that they're saying all these things about you that are not true, but with the ultimate result that one day they may see your behavior and recognize that something's different about you and eventually be persuaded that God is real and that Christ is the way of salvation. So that is why Peter is saying the things that he's saying here. And he says, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. So Peter is talking to a very specific situation. Apparently, there were people who were married, women in particular, who were actually coming to Christ, and yet their husbands didn't believe. And so Peter is trying to help these women in this really tense situation with their husbands to try to figure out how do I win my husband over to Christ in a way that is winsome? And Plutarch, the ancient Roman historian, says and really gives us a little bit of context about the, the view of how women should conduct themselves in a household in the first century. He says, a wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and foremost uh, important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tightly upon any strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. So in the ancient world, especially the, the Greco-Roman world, the order of the house, your domestic affairs, was divinely ordained, according to the Greek philosophers. And so if a woman decided that she was going to worship a god other than the god of her husband, then really what she was doing was disrupting this divine order. And a lot of times in Greco-Roman thinking in this first century, there was a direct connection between one's well-being and prosperity and their religious observance. So there was fear maybe among the husbands that this was disrupting that order and would bring their life into chaos. The second thing is, it was unusual for a woman to leave the home and make friends with people who were not her husband's friends. And so this would have attracted suspicion as well. Not to mention, husbands might have experienced criticism or maybe even damage to their reputation when people found out that his wife was going out meeting with these group of people who practiced a different religion who he didn't know. And so Peter is saying here, you need to be careful because the way that you're acting, you expressing this new freedom that you have in Christ is actually hurting 
your ability to win your husband over to Christ. And he says that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So apparently these women probably tried to persuade their husbands, tried to make arguments for why God is real and why Jesus is the way of salvation. And many of these husbands probably rejected that, probably even mocked them for their beliefs. And so there was tension that was brewing over this newfound religion that their wives had. And it probably got so tense that they couldn't even bring this up. Otherwise, it would turn into a fight. Now, some of us are sort of in the same situation with our own family, even though maybe we're not married, where things have gotten so tense. We've laid out all of these arguments for belief in God, belief in the Bible, and it's just always turned into this fight with our family. And now you can't even bring up the Bible or God without things getting real tense in the house. Well, I guess, how does Peter's instruction to submit apply? Well, I think, first of all, you can't just apply this in a straightforward way, arguing that wives should just submit to their husbands. Because again, we need to understand the context in which Peter was speaking to his audience. He was talking to a very specific situation that faced women who were believers when their husbands were adamantly opposed to Christianity. And so today, obviously this doesn't apply. You know, it's very common for a woman, even if she's married, to have friends that are not her husband's friends. In fact, a lot of times the husbands are like, yeah, please be with your friends. I want to be with my friends, right? Or for them to have a different religion than their spouse. But that was totally different in the ancient world. Karen Jobes, who's a New Testament scholar and who wrote actually a commentary on 1 Peter, said, those who do not understand Peter's intent in his instruction of wives and husbands will not understand the message of 1 Peter. How short-sighted it is to use this passage as if it were a marriage manual simply addressing the relationship between husbands and wives. And how ironic it is that the words that first century wives would have read as actually affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. You see, one of the things that Christ offers, contrary to popular belief, is incredible freedom. Freedom from the need to try to create our own sense of significance, the freedom from trying to figure out what meaning I have in my own life. God gives that to us in Christ. And what was happening is these women were so enamored with this freedom that they had that they were actually using it as sort of a cloak for their own selfishness. And Peter's saying, use your freedom instead to love and serve other people. The second thing is to try to influence your non-Christian husband by your changed character. Peter's like, listen, talk is cheap. You can say whatever you want and talk about love and serving and all these things, but at the end of the day, it's going to be about your life. That is what's going to really persuade people, especially your husband. We've had numerous couples, especially in our adult ministry, who 
where the wife actually comes to Christ first, and then there's this lag where maybe months or even several years later, the husband comes to Christ. And we've had opportunities to ask some of the husbands, like, what was it like during that time over several years when your wife was a believer following God and you weren't? And one guy in particular was just like, yeah, I just kind of thought my wife was like, like, I thought it was just really stupid that she was going to a Bible study. I mean, come on, reading the Bible? That's kind of dumb. But it was weird because I had to admit that my life actually got better. And that she was better because she was following God. You see, if you have a problem with bitterness and unforgiveness, and then God comes into your life and starts to change you so that you're now forgiving the people around you, even your spouse, that's going to that's gonna grab your husband's attention, right? Maybe you are a person who is very critical. You're negative. You say critical things about people. You are negative about the situations that you're in. And then God starts to work in your life to change that. And your husband now starts to see that you're actually refraining from saying critical things about people and him. And now you're actually saying positive, encouraging things to him. That's going to grab his attention. And so that's what Peter's saying here. He's saying, let, let your, your, your character persuade him if things are so tense. Now, a lot of us are falling, probably feeling a little bit relieved, like, okay, good. So that's not what I thought it was initially, right? Okay. Here's the other thing. There are other passages that establish a pattern for leadership and submission in a Christian marriage. Okay? Within the context of marriage, God actually calls on husbands to lead. Look at passages like Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 23, where Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. Aye! So he's not giving practical advice here. He's giving theological advice, right? He said, just like Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. You're probably wondering yourself, how are you going to wiggle out of this one? Well, I think, first of all, it's important for us to define leadership. You know, God's idea of leadership is really different from our type of leadership that we think of. You know, when we think of somebody who's a leader, a lot of times there's suspicion about corruption. When you think of a leader, you think of somebody who is using their authority and power to subjugate and to marginalize other people. You think about people who are in leadership and they are people who want to be in positions of power and to have other people do things for them, right? But Jesus sort of turns that upside down and says, that's not the kind of leadership I'm talking about. He says in Matthew or Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45, he says, you know, when you look around to the rulers of the Gentiles, you know what they really like to do? They like to lord it over each other. They like to put themselves in positions of power and make everybody else feel really small. He says, not for my followers. He said, if you want to be first, You need to be last. And then he says, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus said, listen, if you want to be a big deal, if you want to be a leader, if you want responsibility, you need to serve. You need to lay down your rights, your freedoms, and serve. Be the least among others. Totally different concept than what we see in our world today. Not only that, Jesus didn't just talk the talk, he actually walked the walk. He lived this. The Bible says that God actually put on human flesh and came in the man Jesus. Why? Because God saw the plight of humanity. He saw that we were confused and bewildered and doing things that were destroying ourselves. And instead of judging us, which was within his rights, what did God do? He came to rescue us. And we're told that Jesus, even though he is the king, even though he possesses great power and authority, at any moment by a word could call a legion of angels to come and rescue him. What did he do? He sacrificed his life. He laid down his life. And the Bible tells us that the angels stood in awe of what was happening, that God would do such a thing for people like us. You see, it's with this in mind that Paul tells husbands, lead your wives. He says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Oh, uh, that's not what I signed up for. Lay down my life like Jesus did. I'll tell you, if my wife wants to lead, she could she could take a turn at the front. Honey, go ahead, lead. Have at it. Sounds great. You know, what this is talking about is being an initiator. Relationally, spiritually, providing, being a contributor. You know, you see so many men in our culture today, and there is passivity when it comes to these things. So many men are just so enamored with playing video games and goofing off, not having ambition for their lives. You know, when it comes to the ability to relate, they're completely confused, socially inept. You know what it means to be a leader? It means to be an initiator. It means to be emotionally vulnerable. It means thinking about your wife and your family and how you can enrich them spiritually. That is real leadership. Being the first one to serve. Instead of waiting for your wife and kids to do that. Also, submitting in a Christian marriage means being responsive to your husband's effort to love and serve. That's really what this is talking about. You know, in the context of my marriage, you know, it's not like when I, my wife is submitting. It's like we're driving somewhere and we're, we're debating where we're going to eat, right? She wants Chinese food. I want Mediterranean food. And I'm not like, listen, you need to submit to this falafel. That is what we're eating tonight. <laughs> it's not like that, right? It's more like when I'm trying to initiate like a conversation or trying to initiate something spiritual that at least there's a willingness to listen and to engage that. That is what I think submission means here. And, you know, I think it's too, meaning that you're trying to do things that are best for your wife. 
I think about my wife, and she is luckily very, very low maintenance, which is good because we complement each other, if you know what I mean. (laughs) But I love the fact that she's really low maintenance, and she has this habit of like buying a pair of pants or shoes and wearing them until they're threadbare and they've got holes in them and stuff like that. And finally, I'm just like, listen, let's go out and buy you a pair of shoes. And she's like, we don't have any money. And I'm like, no, we are buying you shoes. Please submit to my desire to love and serve you. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, when we think about this, this whole passage, really, Ephesians 5, is cast in this picture of mutual submission. In verse 21, Paul says earlier, he says, submit to one another in perfect reverence to Christ. So the Christian life is not about looking at your spouse or other people and thinking, how can I get one up on them? How can I get them to do what I want them to do? It's people trying to outdo one another in serving and loving. And when that happens in a spiritual community, guess what happens? Everybody's needs get met, right? Let's move on. He says in verse 3 and 4, he says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So he says, don't adorn yourself merely by, by having these nice hairstyles, getting your hair done, you know, wearing nice jewelry, putting on nice clothes, those sorts of things. He says, not merely. And again, we need to understand the context of this. In first century Greco-Roman culture, outward adornments, according to Philo, the famous philosopher, was perceived to be instruments of seduction. Xenophon, another philosopher during this time, said a woman's use of cosmetics was viewed as an attempt to deceive. And Plutarch makes a comment that most women stay indoors if you take from them gold embroidered shoes, bracelets and pearls. So apparently, not only was it scandalous for a woman to venture outside the house and make friends that her husband didn't know, but these women were also using their freedom in Christ to dress up, which would have been viewed in the ancient world as them actually seeking out to commit adultery on their husband. So you can see why Peter was concerned here in saying, listen, you need to be careful about this because not only do you want to try to win your husband, you don't want to bring down heat from the Roman culture, or this culture onto the Christian faith. Now, I think when we look at our culture today, um, you know, this quality of having a good character, it's not really something that's emphasized, right? Peter says that we should uh, adorn ourselves with these imperishable qualities of gentleness and a quiet spirit. I think a lot of times we look at our character and it gets overlooked, compared to other things. We're not so much concerned about these character qualities, and yet what does God say? He puts a great premium on this. He says these are lasting qualities, and he backs this theologically because they are precious in the sight of God. You know, today, 
You think about how so many women are being bombarded with ads, magazines, videos, media that convince them that they need to live up to this standard of beauty that causes them to feel constantly insecure about the way they look. And the thought is, if I can get that, if I can be attractive, then I can get the good things in life. Then I can get people to love me. Then I can find somebody to love me. But it's not just women. I mean, men are the same way. You know, guys think if I could just really accentuate the things that women view as attractive, then I can get the good things in life. Then I can find myself a woman. You know, that's why you see guys, you know, in the gym, they're just pumping iron like, you know, groaning, hurting themselves. You know, it's it's to look swole, to look hot so that women are just like, oh, my gosh, you're so you're so cut, you know. But, you know, what Peter's saying here is that, listen, we're not saying that you should completely neglect how you look. But the problem is when you focus in on the externals, you're really chasing after something that is perishable. He says instead, chase after things that are imperishable, like a good character, that are enduring over the years. You know, a lot of us are probably sitting here and thinking to ourselves, well, I'm single, so how does this even apply to me? Well, I think, first of all, when you think about your marriage choices, what what you hope to attract guys with will ultimately determine what kind of guy you're going to attract. And so if you focus in on the superficial qualities, your outward looks, guess what? You're going to find somebody who is superficial, who's all about that. Who only cares about that, probably? You know, if you want to have a successful marriage relationship, concentrate on adorning yourself with these godly relational qualities. You know, this idea of being gentle, it's not something that's specifically feminine. Jesus was referred to as gentle. In fact, he called himself gentle in the Gospels. And really, this word just simply means to be humble. Somebody who doesn't assert their rights, but is willing to lay that down for other people. And I'll tell you, if you talk to the married people in this room, they'll tell you, if you want to have a successful marriage, it's all about laying down your rights and trying to serve your spouse. And the other thing, too, is attractiveness is fleeting. You know, some of us are like, well, but she's so hot. I mean, I know that her character's maybe not in the greatest place. I know that she's not that relational. Maybe she's not even really that spiritual, but she's so hot. (laughs) You know, here's the thing. Attractiveness is fleeting. That's true for women and for men. Think about what Proverbs 31 verse 30 says. Charm is deceptive and beauty does not last. Here's the thing. Over time... This this quality that you have of attractiveness is going to diminish, right? And trust me, I'm I'm 40. I'm going to be 42 this year, and I look better 10 years ago, right? <laughs> things are breaking down, things are sagging. It's not pretty, okay? Let me tell you, it gets harder. But the one thing that I can obtain that will last forever is a good and godly character. I can excel in being relational. I can excel in loving people and and growing in wisdom. 
Okay, verse 5 and 6. He says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah, this Old Testament figure, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So again, she says, oh my gosh, she called him Lord? I mean, I imagine trying to ask my wife, from now on, I want you to call me Lord. (laughs) How do you think that would go over? It's in the Bible, right? Well, the reference that Peter is making is actually to Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, where God actually promised Abraham in his old age and in Sarah's that they were going to have a child. And Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I actually now have this pleasure of, of bearing a child? So that's the reference here. And really, I think what this word Lord, I mean, we don't use that today, but it was just a word to describe being respectful. You know, it was, it was a, a term of respect that women lavished upon their husbands. It wasn't demeaning. It didn't suggest that they were lesser than their husbands. It was just a way of them honoring their husbands. Okay. Now, there are a few further points that we should make before we now turn to husbands. First of all, this passage is not suggesting that a woman should remain in a marriage that is physically or sexually abusive. In fact... To underscore this point, in the first century Greco-Roman world, the Greek philosophers agreed that if a woman was enduring domestic abuse, that she was not a virtuous woman. It was not one of those things where it was cool for a woman to be in a situation like that and to just remain under her husband's submission. And so the Bible explicitly states that, you know, this is not okay. For, for husbands to use their, their physical strength to try to compel their wives to do things. And really, you know, in our church, if a man is physically harming his wife or his children or sexually, um, they're subject to church discipline. We will toss him out of the church and try to protect his family. Secondly, Paul makes an important qualification to Peter's point in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 13 and 17. You know, it was a very similar situation where Paul was addressing people who were married. And he was saying, listen, if you're married to somebody who is not a believer, know that God has actually put, uh, you know, special blessing upon your family. That he has carved them out and said, listen, they are distinct They're holy, and I'm going to try my best to try to lead them to Jesus. But he also points out, even if you do everything right, that's no guarantee that your husband's ultimately going to respond to Christ. And so in that case, if he wants to leave you because you're following Christ, let him go. Okay, let's turn to our last verse. You husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way as someone who is weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So apparently households would come to Christ, but you know how it is. Sometimes people will say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but 
really there's big questions as to whether or not they have a real relationship with God. And it's likely that some of these men in the ancient world who were married actually became believers, but their wives were not true believers, even though in name they said they, said they were. And so Peter is saying to the husbands, think about how you can win over your wives. And he says, live with them in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Now, nothing in the Bible ever says that women are intellectually or emotionally weaker than men. In fact, the Bible actually extols women and holds them in very high regard. What most commentators believe Peter's talking about here is physical strength. That men should not be physically abusive to their wives out of frustration. Also, that they should, in practical matters, use their physicality to help out around the house. And so really what he's saying here is a woman is not weaker emotionally or intellectually. He's saying that women are physically weaker than men in general. I mean, I watch the Olympics and there's like women's powerlifting. And I'm just like, if, if they threw us in the ring and we had to box, I don't know. But in general, that's true. And so... What Peter's saying is things like this, right? Um, <laughs> I, lo- I love how he's got the cigarette, cigarette hanging from his mouth. You're like, you couldn't grab two oars? I mean, you could, you could smoke while you're rowing. Or things like this or like that. He's saying, listen, you know, help out. Try, try to be helpful around the house. So he says you should show honor. And again, there are a lot of different ways that we can show honor to our wives physically. That means not putting your hands on your on your wife in anger. Um, You know, for us singles, some of us have anger problems and, and we can't imagine ever abusing our spouse physically. But I'm sure that people who have engaged in this probably never thought they could do that either. And so it's important for you, before you even get married, to get control of that so that things like that don't happen. It also means verbally, you know, some some of us would say, well, I'm not I'm not abusing my wife. Well, you are verbally. You demean her. You talk down to her. You treat her like a child. You speak about her in disrespectful ways when she's not around. But it's not just the absence of negative things that you say to your wife. It's also positively speaking highly of her, encouraging her. Sexually, it means being faithful to your wife or husband and not going out on them. Emotionally, being vulnerable. Now, some some of you guys are probably like, I'm not emotional. Yes, you are. Otherwise, you would be subhuman, right? Everybody has emotions. The thing is, you need to be able to cultivate that if you want to have a healthy relationship. Financially, it means being able to provide. You know, some men are being carried on the backs of their wives because they goofed around in college and have flunked out and are working on their associate's degree after eight years. They don't have a plan in their lives. They have no ambition. And so it's a real drag to have them in the house when their wife has to provide for them. 
And so for us singles, before we even get married, get it together. Get a job, get a career path, have an ambition, be a contributor to your family, right? Practically, this means helping out around the house, not just sitting around on the couch watching sports, you know, as your wife is scrambling around to do stuff, but, you know, helping out, doing things around the house, fixing, fixing things. And then spiritually, it means being an initiator spiritually. Bringing up spiritual conversations, praying with your wife, things like that. And then the last thing is, he says, as a fellow heir of grace, he says, you should live with your wife in an understanding way. He says, listen, your wife, she is a fellow heir of grace. The Bible teaches actually that believers in Christ will be co-heirs with Christ in God's kingdom. In other words, if you are a believer in Christ, you will be reigning with Jesus because God says you are his adopted son and daughter. And so we need to be conscientious of that. You know, does the way you treat your wife give full honor to her identity as a co-heir of God's kingdom? Yeah, I don't mistreat my wife in outward ways, but do I treat her in a way that is fitting with the standard that one should have for dealing with the co-heir of God's kingdom. Husbands, do you realize that your wife is God's daughter? And by extension, God is your father-in-law? You <laughs> should think about that next time you treat your wife, uh, you know, poorly. He says, too, if, if you don't do these things, your prayers will be hindered. So, you know, some of us are ambitious. We want to be used for God. We want God to bless us in our ventures. We want God to, to use us mightily. And we're like, God, please use me. Please bless me. And God's like, I don't want to hear any of that until you fix this problem with your marriage, the way that you treat your wife. So let's draw some conclusions. First of all, the Bible has a very high view of women. It's extraordinary in that regard. We see in the Bible that there are prominent women who play great leadership roles. Secondly, God's leadership is very different from the world's. Unlike our world, God's view of leadership is not about asserting ourselves or grabbing power from others who possess it. But instead, it's laying down our rights. It's serving other people. Third, being a good husband means more than refraining from mistreating your wife. It means loving her, initiating with her, being vulnerable with her, providing for your family and contributing. Now, unlike Peter's audience, many of you can't choose, many of you can choose who you marry. And so instead of trying to go out and find the right person, start by becoming the right person. You know, there's obsession, this obsession to try to find somebody that's going to love me and meet my needs. What about you learning how to be a loving person and meeting other people's needs and then finding somebody else who has the same values and same pursuits? And this all begins by starting a relationship with God. You know, some of you here tonight don't even have a relationship with God. You have a lot of relational issues 
your relationships are in disarray and you're confused about that, that may be one of the reasons why you're here tonight. The thing you need to realize is you can't fix yourself. It's going to require the supernatural of God coming into your life and transforming you for you to see real change. And so you have an opportunity to do that tonight by simply turning to Jesus in your heart tonight and asking him and inviting him in. Uh, Lord, thank you so much that, um, you know, we can read these passages with confidence, knowing that in your eyes, men and women are equal. And it's not just because we're bending to our culture or we're trying to accommodate to make Christianity seem a lot more winsome to our culture, but that it's actually true. And um, we do pray for this area of marriage and romance, Lord. It's a very confusing topic. I think it's something that is on the minds of a lot of people in this room. And uh, I pray, first of all, for those of us who are married, I pray that this would challenge us to become better spouses, that we would learn to honor and love our spouse just like you honor and love us. I pray for those of us who are single, I pray that we would make um, good choices that are not based on superficial things, but that we would look beyond the surface and see that you know people's character and their diligence and their way of life is just as important as their outward appearance. And finally, I pray for those of us who don't know you. I pray that if uh, we realize that we have some deficiencies relationally, that we would recognize that there's no way for us to really change other than to have you in our lives. And so I pray for anyone who doesn't have a relationship with you, that they would just in their hearts turn to you now and receive that forgiveness that Jesus freely offers all of us. And we thank you for that in his name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.